Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Today on the podcast, we have a assortment of different things we're going to discuss. I think that it's been a while since we've been in everyone's feeds and we are itching to get back to it. Uh, ben and I are both busy people with real lives to attend to and for Ben, mock trial teams to coach and for me, mock trial teams to start, which we will get into soon, hopefully. <laughs> uh I think the first thing we want to talk about is just the the next episode that we're planning on doing. Um, we want to do a mailbag episode where you kind of send in questions for both of us. You can use our Gmail, themockreview at gmail.com, uh, our Facebook. You can send us messages there. And if you know us personally, you know, drop us a line, text, email, whatever, and we'll get, try and get to it. Um, but we're really looking forward to kind of hearing from everyone. What do they think of the case so far? If they have questions for us, we'll do our best to answer them. Uh, I know that I am very not super affiliated with Havford as much anymore. We are a proudly student-run program, so not going to be getting into a whole ton of uh, their case theory or decisions they've made. And I'm sure that Ben is probably not going to want to – delve into any program secrets that UMBC has been running just yet. Uh, but we'll try to get through just about everything else in between. Um, so Ben, what, just to sort of kick the conversation off, how's the season been going so far for you guys? What are you thinking? It's been an interesting season so far. And, and to echo what you were just saying for a moment ago, we're, we're very excited about the mailbag episode. Facebook is uh, facebook.com slash the mock review. Twitter is at the mock review. Uh, so like anything you guys like, you know, mock trial related, non mock trial related, whatever, like we're happy to get into it. Uh, but, you know, it's been a fun season so far. We uh, we've been out to, I think, maybe four or five tournaments now between our three unstacked teams. We were just a couple days ago at uh, Haverford's excellent Black Squirrel Invitational where Drew and I get to hang out and catch up on stuff. Uh, and, and we've sort of been around the mostly like the DC Maryland area. We went down to Duke for their excellent tournament. Uh, I think it's been a fun case so far. We're going to talk in, in a little bit later in this episode to Neil Shewitt, who's the chair of the criminal case committee. And I'm looking forward to like talking to him about some of the origins of the case. Uh, just because like this is, you know, it's funny. Like I keep saying to people like, oh, like this year's case is so much more serious than last year's case. And then it's like, well, someone died last year too. But like, I mean, obviously it's a child versus an adult, but I don't, I don't know exactly how to put my finger on it. I think it's mostly just because the person responsible for the death is mm -hmm. actually on trial in this case. Yeah. But like last year's case, you could get away with so much comedy and so much humor, like up until like right before like the performance started. And this year it's like, like it's tough. It is a harsh, like pretty brutal case and there's not a ton of room for like some of the entertainment aspect of mock trial but but overall it's been a fun uh couple of months i think we've enjoyed the case so far and looking forward to like seeing it continue to evolve uh drew i know you're not as involved with haverford which helped out a little bit and obviously you were at black squirrel so uh what are your thoughts so far well just to go off what you were just mentioning it, it is a very different case than than kozak i mean look when a chimpanzee kills someone, it's obviously sad, but a piece of you is just kind of imagining a chimpanzee running around and kind of chuckling to yourself a little bit. When this is a parent, you know, pushing their child off of a cliff, there's not a lot of comedy there. That is a really, really awful thing to imagine. It is something that I, I hope doesn't hit home for too many people uh, if they've had a loss in their family. Um, but it, it's definitely like, it just – it does hit home I think more for people and it does feel a little bit more grounded in reality whereas when a, a chimpanzee attacks people, we can kind of say, ah, that's just some fantasy land that we're not going to worry about in this world of mock trial. I, I will say from the – my scope so far uh, on this case has been I've judged a few rounds um, and you know I've, I've read over the case a couple times and developed my own thoughts on it. But from the trials that I've seen uh, – I thought it's it's fairly interesting. My personal take that I will share is that I think it is just impossible to prove murder. I think just it, it is always hard. It is a high burden. But like you're talking about a mother or father or just parent killing their child, a 12-year-old child they just got out of jail to see. I mean – 
there's just a lot that you got to be able to show in order to prove that murder. And I think that involuntary manslaughter, I, I like having the split charges out of I think it is an interesting road to go down. Do you want the expert and this really, really hard burden or do you want slightly easier burden but you don't get any experts? So I think that's kind of a fun wrinkle to throw into the case. Um, as you said, we'll talk to Neil about this later and hash a lot more of this out. But I do think that that is a fun element to this case that I'm, I'm beginning to see more and more of as it develops. And I think that I'm excited to see it further evolve as we get into the second semester of this case and getting into the regional and rest of the AMTA circuit. I think it'll continue to evolve more and more. Yeah. I, you know, so it's been a couple of years since we've had a criminal case with this like dual indictment. And we had the one, you know, with two defendants back with Bancroft and Covington. I'm not sure how many of our listeners competed during that case, but like I coached that case and, and it is hard. Like it is hard. Like, you know, the, the, the level of freshman attrition during these years is, is probably pretty high, all things considered. Um, Mm -hmm. I also have thought, I don't know. I, I don't think I would go so far as to call this a criticism of this case, but the working in of the chronic illness uh, with Parker and the osteogenesis imperfecta uh, is is an interesting aspect to me. You know, one of the things, you know, this is this activity, like many things in life, is one of those things where if everyone's private conversations were made public, no one would have any friends and no one would have a job um, because like the way that you deal with the stress of the season is like you make dark jokes to yourselves, to your own programs. And like, that's, I don't necessarily think there's really anything wrong with that. Cause it's like sort of a measure of a coping mechanism, but I, I don't love the chronic illness aspect of this case. I think it is like, I, I don't particularly like the, the narrative woven in of like Jordan Ryder, just sort of like encouraging Parker page to like, overcome her disease right to just be like be better than than this disease when it's like that's not Mm -hmm. you know it's not how chronic illnesses work uh and i get it and like there there are many people who fundamentally misunderstand them so there's an element of realism to that um but i do like you know in 2019 one of the awesome things about like this world is that we are learning how to balance reality with inclusivity and like you know, I was really glad to see the case uh, committee update the case to basically ban all suicide-based defenses because mm-hmm. number one, there it's a ridiculous defense, and number two, like absolutely, this should be a place where people feel safe to compete without having to be exposed to that. Uh, and so, I do worry about sort of the impact that, like, our community—not necessarily in a bad way, but just like our need to sometimes make light of difficult topics when dealing with difficult topics—and how that you know, relates to the, um, the chronic illness point, but either way, like, I think what we're seeing is a case that is evolving. You know, we, we competed, uh, at GW almost exactly two months after this case came out. And what we saw there was radically different, both in terms of prosecution theories and defense theories from what we just saw with our two teams at, at your excellent tournament at black squirrel. And I think that is the hallmark of at least a case that has a lot more room to grow when you're seeing over the course of essentially a month, like the approach that teams are taking like drastically change. Yeah, no, I think that it's really true. I think that it's, it's kind of always interesting. Like I was saying to, to see how the case evolves over time. And I think that's kind of one of the cool things about this activity is watching it evolve and watching it change and watching people come up with new theories. And as you were citing before, I think that it's good to kind of constantly be controlling for the more damaging theories that people can run. Um, you know, there's certain things that there's just no reason to get into certain things that are going to bring to light things that people just don't need to to be discussing. Like we're here to have a good time. I think that it really forget that we're all just college kids that are doing this because we enjoy it. You know, we don't need to to go so hard or do something that's going to be difficult for someone to participate in the trial. That's just not needed and has really no place in mock trial. So I think it's, it's good to be correcting for those types of things. 
one thing I wanted to to get into before we talk about how the invitational season so far has gone is uh, I to talk a little bit about the high school mock trial world. I am now a boarding school teacher at a boarding school in Groton, teach physics. And uh, the school that I teach at recently started a mock trial team, and I'm really enjoying getting to work with those kids. But it, it's really interesting for me I, as someone that used to do high school mock trial, did college mock trial, and now returning to the high school mock trial world, the the differences that there that exist. And the case that we just got, I mean, it is just so much uh, – if, if there are any people that do high school mock trial that listen to this, please do not be offended when I say this, but it is – tremendously simplified. It is just so much easier. Uh, our case packet is like 60 pages long. Um, it is way, way easier to, to get through. And I, I'm enjoying uh, kind of delving into the coaching aspect of this a little bit more. Uh, but I, I just think that it's it's been really an interesting process for me so far just to see how different these two worlds are. And to give a, a quick shout out to this I this summer uh, helped my my old high school that I actually attended uh, when they competed at Empire, and I think Empire does such a great job of bridging the gap between high school mock trial and college mock trial. And to those of you that that are listening to this podcast that are in high school, you know I highly I, I suspect that many of the programs you're a part of compete in Empire. It is a really high level. Uh, competition and it's a lot of fun. And I will say that I had a really, really fantastic time going there. Uh, the I did want to briefly give this this uh, shout out to uh, a, a team that that Galloway, my high school, faced while they were there. Uh, we got to the final the in round four. We faced Indian Hill High School, and Indian Hill had won Empire the year prior, and they were absolutely phenomenal. They blew us out of the water. We were not ready for them at all. But I I wanted to give a shout out. There was a kid on their team, Ethan Marks. He was fantastic. He absolutely blew me away, was better than most college students that I see. And I was chatting with him after the round. He was absolutely a delight. And I, I'm using my platform to, to be able to do this. But I think that we really don't talk a lot about high school mock trialers, but I think that this is a kid that we're going to be seeing on the circuit soon, and I look forward to seeing how successful he is because he was a tremendously successful high school mocker, and I'm sure it will translate very, very nicely. Um, and I wanted to give him a shout-out because he was a really, really sweet kid, and it's nice to be able to shout-out people on this when I get the chance. So that's my soapbox. Ben, back to you. <laughs> yeah, so – it's it's funny, like, you know, so I did high school mock trial from 2003 to 2007. I have a lot of affection for high school mock trial. And I just actually joined uh, the board for my law, which is Maryland Youth and the Law, which is the uh, organization that governs Maryland high school mock trial. Uh, and I had an editing role in this year's case. I may have a larger role next year's case. Uh, but one of the things that we did this year that, that I had talked with a coordinator about is we converted a lot of the rules to be closer to AMTA rules. So for example, up until recently, Maryland high school mock trial still had an invention of fact objection uh, and that we got rid of that. And we've converted to a system closer to what AMTA does where they uh, you know, now have to go and impeach if, if there's invention of material fact. And you know, it's always such an interesting relationship uh, as a coach when you have people who do high school mock trial, particularly when they've done it at a good program. Because obviously like you know, this will come as no surprise to either any of my students who listen or anyone who knows me, but I'm very particular in the things that I like and the things, the ways that I want to do things. And people who come in with experience oftentimes have tendencies and things like that, that, that may not always be the easiest to get rid of, but I love, like, I want high school mock trial competitors to be paying attention to the college circuit and to use the college circuit to think about like, like, look, very few people are going to choose where they go to college based on their mock trial program. But I think it's good to be informed on that subject. So if you're coming down to two programs, two schools, and one of them is a top 50 program and the other one doesn't have a team, well, maybe that'll inform you a little bit. Uh, and you know, we're, we're, at UMBC, we're actually hosting our first ever high school tournament this upcoming January, and I'm excited 
to see just like the college and law school worlds are starting to meld a little bit more, which that we could do an entire episode on that and how the law school mock trial world is a disaster and needs to be completely reformed from top to bottom. Uh, but like high school mock trial is kind of diluted around the country, but then can come together for things like empire and the national high school mock trial championship. And it would be cool to see even more uh, sort of like, enmeshing of high school and college mock trials so that when former high school competitors walk in the door at their college mock trial program, they're like prepared to, you know, hit the ground running and be successful as freshmen. Yeah. I I think that as much as we can, I really, I really do think actually that the college mock trial circuit has done such a great job of centralizing everything. I mean, AMTA is a is a massive organization when you think about how many member schools we have. And I think it's it's great that we have it so centralized in that way. There isn't a, anything that is even close to that scale on the law school level, to my understanding. And on the high school level, it, it's really – we discussed it's as done by each state basically. And then there is the national competition at the end, but there's really not a lot of – of of matching it up between states and making sure that it's all the same and uniform. And I'll say, I mean, Ben, you talk about changing the rules in Maryland. Man, if someone wants to go up and, and fix some of these rules in Massachusetts, I just – it's driving me up a wall having to try to teach them some of these things and then be like, oh, just kidding. Can't do that. Uh, that's – you know, they're uh, – it's just – it's been frustrating in some ways because I think that I – I wish that it was a little bit closer to what the actual federal rules of evidence were or closer to what AMTA uses, um, but you know, living with what we've got. So to, to move back towards the, the college circuit where I, I assume most of our audience resides, um, as Ben said, you know, we, Ben has attended a lot of the invites on uh, the kind of DC through New York-ish area. I don't think you've been to any tournaments as far as New York, but kind of that strip of area. Now that I'm up further north, I uh, obviously was at Black Squirrel because Haverford. Um, but I also attended Mumbo Jumbo, uh, which is run by Tufts. thought they did a phenomenal job of running it. Um, Tufts is a great program, and they, they really did a, a solid job. And the teams there were awesome. It was a lot of fun to be there and to judge that tournament. I feel like the Northeast and, you know, DC area tends to be a pretty similar area of mock trial. And I think that Ben and I have unfortunately seen a lot of the same stuff, but I will say that there've been some interesting results so far at a lot of these invites. Um, ben, you know, uh, of the tournaments you've been at and from what we've seen on, on AMTA's website, you know, what, what are the early, you know, things that have stuck out to you? Yeah, a couple things. So uh, I think the name, if I had to pick, there's really two. Uh, the second one is one that will shock no one. But uh, the first name that comes to mind for me is Patrick Henry. Uh, they're coming off of a very, very strong season uh, and have been successful at a number of tournaments. And I'm not sure they're totally stacked yet. Uh, they won Charm City Classic with nearly, we had three ju- scoring judges in every round and they won 11 of 12 ballots. So they they pretty much cruised their way through that field uh, and, and were really, really excellent. I feel like I've seen them at the top of a lot of tab summaries and like winning awards and just, I mean, they just, they do such a great job there. Um, uh, Sue Johnson, who used to be uh, heavily, who's a member of the AMTA board and used to be involved with North Carolina High School Mock Trial, has taken over uh, the position that was held by the late Dr. Frank Aluza. Uh, and uh, so I'm sure they're not going to skip a beat as amazing as Frank was. And he was, he was truly incredible. Um, Sue is a really, really fantastic uh, coach and, and uh, coordinator. And I think that they're in good hands. Uh, so I think like Patrick Henry is one of those interesting programs where they dominate the moot court circuit so much. And so many of those kids do both, but you got to think one of these years, they get it, they're going to break through and get to a final round at the AMTA level. Uh, and then the other name um, that I think will come as no shock to anyone, of course, is is Yale. Uh, they have you know won a couple of tournaments, been at the top for a couple of tournaments. One of the interesting things with those tournaments uh, is that you're seeing a couple of names on the invitational tab summaries that are people that are not going to be able to compete past regionals. I won't go into specifics, but, but most people I think know who they are. And it is interesting that like 
you, you're like, okay, once they stack for orcs and those people can't compete anymore, like, how are they going to be able to be a national level contender? But I'll say this, like casting no judgment one way or the other on anything. I can't really think of a situation where someone would be more motivated to uh, mm-hmm. do well than I imagine they are right now. So those are the two names that jump jump out to me. We saw Ohio State at Duke's tournament, and they had a couple big names on their team. They were really good. They they ran us out of the courtroom in, in that round. It was a young team that I had there. Um, we've seen we saw Michigan at round one at your tournament. They were excellent. Uh, we saw Fordham Lincoln Center at your tournament. They were very good. So I think uh, no one has shocked me with anything yet, but I think you're going to see a lot of the same strong schools in this area, you know, continue to be successful this year. Yeah. I mean, look, year after year, it's kind of the same names coming up, you know, Yale wins a couple, Ohio State's winning a couple, uh, you know, these are strong programs. Again, I, I want to say Yale to me coming, bouncing back the way they are, is really impressive. And Yale doesn't normally have this strong of an imitational season. I mean, Yale is a team that, that normally is unstacked and teaching some of their young first years how to do this activity. And they're not always really strong. We always kind of say, Oh, you know, maybe Yale's off this year. I feel like that has not been the case so far. They're just turning it up a notch. The other team that I wanted to shout out uh, as far as their, their depth really that has impressed me is Tufts. Tufts has four teams competing and I feel like all of them are really good. Like that's just really impressive to me to have four teams that are all at a very, very high level. Um, There are programs, Rhodes, UCLA that, that, that do it year after year that have that type of depth, but most of them, not roads to be fair, are much larger. And I think that doing it as a, a smaller school uh, like Tufts is really, really impressive. And and to be a student-run program pulling something like that off is really, really uh, you know awesome for them. And I, I would even – one of the biggest things that I'm noticing so far from the circuit is there are a lot of teams that are in recovery mode. A lot of teams just lost a lot of strong members – um, and they're they're kind of starting to figure it out. I know that NYU is is kind of in that stage right now. I think that they've they've had some strong showings, but they seem like they're in a rebuilding year. Um, I, we could go through a lot of these different programs, but they're just. I, I feel like there's a general consensus right now of teams are rebuilding. They're figuring out. Who's going to replace some of these ridiculous powerhouses they've had for a while, you know, leading their programs. And I think it's kind of the time where some of these programs that have been slowly accruing uh, these younger members that are really strong, that are about to start to really shine. Wesleyan, I have my eye on, um, you know, Wesleyan's a team where last year at nationals, they had one senior competing amongst two teams at nationals. That's a team that's going to be really good. I mean, they lost a strong member in in Heather Pincus, but you know that's that's going to have you know to have that many competitors coming from nationals experience is is a good sign for them for sure. So I think that I, I'm excited to see to see how this kind of all shakes out. I think that for me, I, I think that there's a little you got to be careful when you talk too much about results in the unstacked season. I think that as we, in the next couple of weeks, when we see Gamte, Yale, when we get into Chicago fire in January, uh, I think that those couple of tournaments are going to be a little bit better indicators um, just to get sense once teams start to actually stack. Yeah, for for sure. And speaking of great Chicago fire that, that I haven't seen any results necessarily about them, but like, if you said to me right now, like put money on one team to be there at the very end, I think it would be Chicago. Oh, it's Chicago. And I think for sure. The, the, I mean, Chicago's always excellent, but this is their you know, year. there are only well, and there are only three at most returning trial by combat competitors in the country. And mm-hmm. one of them obviously is Regina Campbell, who like probably is the best advocate in the country. I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say. 
And that doesn't like one person does not an elite team make, but Chicago was like five points away from, you know, if they'd flipped a couple ballots mm-hmm. in round three, uh, they would have had a shot at the final round themselves. So I, I think they are someone I would be very surprised to not see them there at the very end. And I'm also, you know, you mentioned those other tournaments and I totally agree that that's when we're going to start to get clarification and, you know, we'll be at Gamtee, Cubate and Great Chicago Fire. And I will be very interested to see, you know, the Great Chicago Fire field is unreal. It's like a downtown field. It might be better than some of the more recent downtown years. And, um, you know, because like the downtown obviously wasn't hosted in the city where Nationals was most years. And that field, you know, I think I, I looked at it the other day. And it's like 19 of the top 25 teams. It's just outrageous. Wow. And so that's going to tell us a lot about, okay, like who is like really rising to the top here as regional season comes upon us. Yeah, I think that Chicago Fire obviously is going to be probably the best indicator of what what both the judging field looks like and what they like and also what the top of AMTA, who is truly at the top. So I think that that will be a very strong indicator. And as you said, in the in the vacuum that downtown has left us. I think that Chicago fire has kind of assumed that role for this year. I kind of like the idea that, you know, I not to toot my own horn too much, but hopefully that black squirrel being the host of nationals last year, and then Chicago fire hosting at the same site as nationals this year, that being kind of continue this trend of having someone host at that site and that be a really, really elite tournament that kind of gives us a bit of a primer on, you know, who's, who are going to be the top dogs at the end? Because that is the site, the judges, the teams, and we're getting a little bit of a, a preview. And uh, you know, the nationals field is always the nationals field and always insanely impressive. But I think that sometimes when you get a an invitational like that that can pick and choose teams, uh, sometimes you can get an even dare I say more elite than nationals field because it can be exclusive to. Uh, and not always that this is a good thing, but it can be exclusive even within the field of nationals to just those, you know, teams that are in the top 10 at the end that you said, you know, having 19 of the top 25. I mean, it's it's hard to get much more exclusive than that. Yeah. So I think that it'll be a lot of fun to see how that that tournament ends up shaking out. And as you know, you're saying there, there are plenty of other tournaments that are coming up that will certainly be strong indicators of of what is soon to come. And I think that all we can do is kind of look forward to it. Yeah. And, and folks, send us your questions because we're looking yep. forward to yep. uh, chatting with people. And, and you know, we we always we end up talking about a lot of the same things, but there's a, there's many, many things that that, you know, people on the circuit talk about. And so uh, we would really like to have an opportunity to get a sense of what people are talking about and, and get into that. Uh, and speaking of people that we're going to talk to. Uh, I think we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to have the opportunity to talk to the chair of the criminal case committee, Neil Shewitt, who uh, is gracious enough to take some time to talk to us. So we're going to take a quick break and then we come back. We will chat with Neil Shewitt. Welcome back to the mock review. We're pleased to be joined today by Neil Shewitt. Neil Shewitt is a member of the AMTA Board of Directors. He's the executive director of Miami's program. Miami, of course, was our 2018 national champion and, and one of the uh, best programs in AMTA. Uh, Neil's an AMTA alum. He competed at Iowa from 1999 to 2003, including in 2002 and 2003 when they won back-to-back national championships. He coached at Iowa from 2003 to 2010 and has been working with Miami since 2010. And of course, the main reason that we're talking to him today is that he is the current chair of the Criminal Case Committee, which produced State v. Jordan Ryder. So Neil, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us. Glad to be here. So we want to start a little bit with some of the stuff that I was just talking about. So you obviously have been involved in AMTA in some capacity for quite some time, uh, including going all the way back to your time at Iowa. So can you talk about for just a, a little bit your origins uh, and sort of how you got involved in mock trial in the first place. Sure. Um, I like to joke now, my career now can drink, I think. So it's, it's been around <laughs> a long time. Uh, I did not do high school mock trial. Um, I, I guess I briefly flirted with it, but I mean, we had it, but not really. Although Iowa as a state has a very strong high school mock trial 
seen. And so I just kind of saw it when I got to Iowa and, and, and tried it out because I, I knew what it was, but I didn't know what it was like on the college level. Uh, but we were a student-run program. Didn't have any coaches to speak of. There were a couple law students who had been on the Amptis scene, a couple from the Loris College. Um, and so they would help us with ideas to keep us from doing really ridiculous things, but otherwise we were pretty <laughs> self-sufficient. Uh, and then, as you stated, once I went to law school, we had cycled a couple of people from the championship teams into the coaching. And then I stayed in Iowa City for a couple of years with Missy, and then we came out here. So you have an interesting perspective in that you've, you know, probably one of a very small group of people who've won a national championship, both as a competitor and as a coach. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious, it's sort of a broad question, but um, having done both of those things, what's the difference in your mind? And then you've won, I mean, the two were, you know, 16 or 17 years apart. How different was it to win a national championship in 2002, 2003 versus when you just won one in 2018 with Miami? It's pretty different just because, I mean, as you know, from coaching, right, you have no control. Whereas a competitor, you feel like you have control. Um, at least you think you have control, right? So, um, <laughs> I think that was part of it, you know, to, to watch it all happen is very different than being in the moment and being there and being in the rounds. And um, as Danny told you guys a while ago, we make them go blind. So it was interesting to, you know, we told them the night before how they were doing. So, I mean, it was interesting to see how it all unfolded. But I had always told my students at Iowa and Miami that my goal had always been to make them feel what I felt. And to have that moment as their own. So, I mean, it was nice. Uh, I think we got put on Reddit for being insta-barbarians for our screen. So <laughs> it is what it is. It's it's the same, but it's not, right? Because it, it was definitely their moment. They're the team that did it. Uh, and I, I had the privilege of watching. And and one more question on this, and we'll get to the actual case. But So it's interesting. You know, Amtis posted the uh, videos on their YouTube from like just a couple years after um, or actually, they're they're a little bit later, but a couple uh, older national championship final rounds. Uh, how do you think, you know, if at all, the sort of the overall quality of those top top rounds has changed? And you know, from when you were competing to uh, now, do you feel like it's roughly similar, or do you think it's gotten better? You know, just sort of overall since uh, when you were competing versus when you won one with Miami. I think it's definitely changed. I mean, when I was competing, we had five hearsay exceptions. So, I mean, even just the the amount of rules have changed over that period of time. I would say the parity has grown. You know, when I was competing, the Rhodes and the Bellarmines of of the world were were sort of the Marylands, right? I mean, it was that was the top, and it was a very a few teams right up at the top. I think now you have a much broader stroke. Uh, the, the middle of that bell curve has certainly grown as Amtel alums went out from competing to then start coaching. Uh, and so it wasn't like all of the mock trial know-how was focused in certain pockets. So I think definitely it's harder to win now or to succeed over a long period of time now uh, than perhaps back then. Uh, and a lot of those coaches now have retired, right? So it's definitely my generation of competitor who seems to be coaching these days. So it's been an interesting ride to see how that has changed the cases and the circuit and the rules and, you know, the things we used to talk about on perjuries that are now make up our, our tab manual. So uh, it, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. I think that it's always kind of fun to get to hear about the the history of an activity that as a more recent competitor, I know very little about. Uh, but to move on to more pressing matters, uh, the case State v. Rider is upon us. We've been working with it for some time now. So just to kind of kick us off where this case began, Neil, I'm kind of wondering if there's – what was the hatchling idea that this case became? Were there a bunch of different options that you guys – as a committee chose from, did someone kind of have this idea, hey, what if we have a 12-year-old child die? You know, how, how did it really happen? Well, criminal cases are obviously a little interesting, right? Because you're like, what crime do we want to commit <laughs> and argue about? Um, and I'm a criminal 
defense attorney, right? So, I mean, it is what I'm, I'm in the daily, I don't know, every day, right? I get up and this is what I do. So I think it's been interesting to have those type of people on the committee, right? Where it's a nice mix, but um, we originally started talking about various ideas. A lot of it comes down to what kind of crime do we want, right? What have we done recently? How do we want to approach this? And that will usually help us take shape on what we want to do. And then usually from there, you start talking about scenery or the setting of, of everything. One of the things that I've found interesting in, in recent years is we've had Going back to State v. Bancroft and Covington, that was uh, you know we had this split decision at the beginning where you can either prosecute Bancroft, prosecute Covington, um, and we hadn't really had a, a a decision of that magnitude that the prosecution made at the beginning of the trial for some time. So I'm wondering what made you guys uh, come back to that and have that kind of two indictments. You get to pick your poison type of thing for the prosecution. So when we were writing this this summer. I was involved in a criminal defense trial that had these very same charges. And it was charged all as one indictment. There were more charges, but the child endangering involuntary manslaughter and the ag murder were both charged. And so I thought it would be interesting. Well, what if we mix these in, but give them the option of going after one or the other instead of having to argue both, which is hard in a three-hour trial with three witnesses on each side. So that's sort of where the genesis of it all came from. And I think that on that point, expert witnesses are kind of this interesting thing in mock trial where they are oftentimes the staple of certain teams and they can be something that other teams really struggle with. But I feel like most teams have at least one or two people that are really phenomenal expert witnesses they want to portray. So what was the thought process behind constraining those experts based on what the call was, whether it was a murder, aggravated murder, or the manslaughter charge? We spent a lot of time talking about that when we sent it out to proofers as well. What like what do you think of the fact that we may only give ag murder the the experts? And part of the reasoning was we figured if we gave people a choice and they had experts for both, that everyone would choose the easier charge. So the idea was you can tempt everyone to possibly go ag murder uh, if you give them, well, you can use your expert uh, versus perhaps more of a pseudo expert with, with Kai Washington. Right. So uh, my last kind of general what, how did this decision come out uh, is on the, the defense side. So there are only two side-constrained defense witnesses, which I know is – at least I'm not familiar with a case we've had in recent years where there aren't three side-constrained witnesses on one side. That could be a product of my uh, only recent interactions in AMTA. But what was the reasoning behind that where – you're forcing the defense, you need to choose one of these swing witnesses. And by not giving them the first choice, they have to inherently be preparing at least one iteration of, well, if they choose this person, we need someone else. So a lot of decisions also are predicated on case balance concerns. And with a criminal mm -hmm. case, there's always the problem of the burden. And so the state's burden being so high with you know an hour and a half and and i'm sure you've seen the statistics right the scoring changes throughout the round right towards the defense mm -hmm. so that was part of it right which is if you give the defense more things that are moving then yes they have to do more work but i mean case balance right now is it, that's not a problem so far so that's part of it is case balance mm -hmm. and i know everyone <laughs> thinks oh my goodness the defense is totally getting you know, a hard shake of this, but the, that's not what the ballots are showing. So that is one part of it. And then uh, sort of pardon my back in my day, uh, we really had almost everyone was free. <laughs> almost everyone aside from the parties was available on both sides. And so I think it was trying to just get back to that idea of why lock down everything. Uh, we did talk about locking down another one for the defense and they just ultimately decided to to put it as a swing witness. Yeah. I think that the interesting comment that I'll make on this is that I, I totally agree to the extent that it's important to balance cases. I feel like we 
just always see defense case, like the cases end up being cited for the defense. And I remember that when we talked to Justin Bernstein about trial by combat, he writes the case where it is assuming I'm putting forth as much evidence as possible to convict this person, then it's probably going to be a balanced case um, because it's just these are creative students that are able to come up with really interesting defense theories. And again, as you said, the the burden is so high and there are all these other statistics involved. I know that in the rounds that I've judged so far, I'm fairly sure that I've sided for the defense in at least four of the five. Um, just And maybe that's I have a defense-minded brain. But I, I, I totally hear what you're saying, Neil, and it's interesting to me that Despite the fact that we're kind of discussing how the odds are so trying to be stacked against the defense, yet they still managed to pull out quite a few number of wins. Right. I mean, if you go back to the Nationals case a couple of years ago, the blood was on the bat and on the guy's mask, and defense is still winning balance, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, it, it, I mean, that burden is <laughs> yep. pretty high with three witnesses in an hour and a half. And I, I know you're not supposed to hold them to the merits, but I mean, it's just kind of a thing that happens. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And I, and I, I think. You know, and we'll get into the how the case has been playing in a little while, but I think that it's been it's been a unique challenge so far, and I think it's been a fun challenge. Um, but speaking of unique challenges, obviously you've got a committee of several people, several folks who are helping you know produce this case. And you know, when we talked to Mike Elvin last year, we asked him the same question. So, how did you approach uh, as this case is getting built, and you're sort of like figuring out like who's doing what? How did you approach uh, the work of dividing and conquering while making sure the case had uh, continuity and was sort of able to come to a finished product. Sure. So our, our case committee was largely comprised of newer members, uh, people who had not written a case before. And so with that comes a couple of challenges, but we had a I would actually say a really great committee. Um, and I didn't quite know what to expect with a lot of new people. Now they all had mock trial experience, right? But writing a case is very different. Um, so the good thing was there was a lot of energy and interest and people working on things. And, um, you know, it wasn't a bunch of people who didn't care. They wanted to be there. And it was awesome. I thought we got along really well. The way we sort of sectioned it off was, I mean, we had like a Google Doc running that, and, you know, that's where your timeline is and in other important scenery or dates, issues, you know, most things like elements or things like that, right, that you're going to put in there so that everyone knows what exhibits go towards what. And then we just kind of broke off to who wanted to do what kind of witness, and we went from there. And, and when you're writing the case, uh, and, and I know the topic has been chosen at this point, right, but one of the interesting things I've found coaching the case so far is finding the balance between, you know, I mean, so much of mock trial is sometimes comedic witnesses to try to, you know, entertain the judges. But obviously this is a very serious topic. I think it's probably, you know, the only case that I've dealt with and I've not been around this, you know, quite that much longer than Drew, but was going back to the, um, uh, the case Duran, uh, right. I blanket on the name, the Duran case with another child death. How do you balance the need for, entertainment value and comedy when you're you're writing and building those things in versus obviously the need to keep some degree of sort of seriousness when you're dealing with a subject like a child uh, dying right tough balance uh we i think one of the things that we really focused on with this one was trying to make it fairly realistic um you know there's not a lot of over the top just entertainment witnesses. Uh, and I know I get a lot of flack from some people like Corbin Dallas, right? I mean, but <laughs> Corbin, you know, when I would prosecute locally or you're dealing with people who you see in a courtroom is very real. Um, and a lot of them are just very real. So I think what we were going for is just mm-hmm. be realistic and it would kind of take care of itself. Um, but also give the leeway wiggle in the joints, if you will, for people if they wanted to take it into an entertainment direction. Uh, they certainly can, and perhaps at their own peril, depending on what the judges think. But most of it was just trying to make it very realistic. Along this uh, line, so the the case was released, and uh, you you know, like there after that, that you did the initial case changes about a month later. And one of the interesting things, going back to sort of what Drew was saying about the mechanism of call, is it was originally a PD 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 call. And then it was switched with the case changes to be PDDP, 
DP so that the defense gets, you know, the second and third calls. Uh, did that have something to do with um, the defense sort of trying to reduce the burden on the defense a little bit? Or I saw some people saying like, I guess in theory, if you called the defendant first or something, you could end up with no, you know, with, without enough witnesses. What was the logic behind that change? Yeah, pure human error to not think, oh, right, if no one wants to call the defendant, I think they would have run out of witnesses. It, it, it was a weird scenario that you didn't really contemplate, right? <laughs> Which was, if the state called only swing witnesses and the defense didn't call the defendant, then potentially there were only two witnesses, right, for for the defense. So that was part of it was mm-hmm. to avoid that embarrassment uh but then it was also to slightly lessen the burden um on the defense right because once we got in there we're like okay yeah this might be too cumbersome and we can fix the potential that we break uh, mock trial so (laughs) that was the reason so again going to these case changes uh aside from the ones that you've made I mean, how are you feeling about the case so far? I Miami has competed a few times, and I assume that you have seen them go and seen what case theories they have developed. But do you are you happy with the way that teams have been going about the case so far? Are there theories that maybe you weren't expecting people to go down that they they did choose to go down? What what are the general thoughts so far, and from you and the committee, really? Um, personally. So my, my teams are actually pretty upset with me. I tell them like I'm a, I'm a net geo photographer and I sometimes you got to watch the, the baby <laughs> seal get eaten by the orca, right? I, they, they're like, tell us something. We're like, there's nothing to tell you. So um, I, I just kind of let them sort out their own theories right now. So that's what they're doing. Uh, but I've judged some rounds. I've watched a bunch. Uh, I think what was interesting is, so we're right about two thirds ag murder right now. Um, and one third involuntary manslaughter, which was opposite of what we had predicted would happen. Uh, we had thought more people would go involuntary manslaughter mm-hmm. because it was quote unquote, like I said, the easier charge. So that was surprising to see so far. There have definitely been some case theories that <laughs> were not anticipated um, th- that I've seen out on the circuit. And we, I've got, we've gotten a lot of questions um, from people. Uh, about particular theories. Uh, as far as the committee, I think, you know, what we're looking for coming out is, you know, can we keep the balance? What do we need to keep balance? And as the defense always gets stronger, you know, it's what what do we need to do so that come regionals and orcs, this doesn't, you know, it's not all about what side you're going in the third round. Fair enough. So, I'm not sure how much you're going to be able to get into this, and we, we're not asking for specifics. But as aside from the general case, you know, balanced issues um, that are made, are there any major, like, are there any planned changes that you guys kind of had from the beginning that you're excited to have come out, maybe at the orc stage or before regionals, that are kind of already planned out? You know, you're going to add this, maybe change a wit. Uh, radically change a witness or add a witness or add a piece of evidence. Um, are there anything like that that we can be expecting if you can say it at all? Um, I don't know if I can say exactly in specifics. I mean, I think, again, it's going to depend on, on case balance, right? And you can handle that a whole bunch of different ways, which is making crosses stronger, adding mm-hmm. facts or weakening things here or there. So that's what we're really discussing right now. What is the best approach to handle the case, which, like I said, with about 2300 ballots in it is it is almost neck and neck um and so messing with it too much when you have almost no season right in january to say well what did what happened based on our changes is hard Mm -hmm. um i mean i think without saying too much right i mean there were other witnesses we considered right when we were writing this thing so maybe they'll they'll come into play um, maybe the, you know, the bait shop receipt becomes more relevant or not, you know? Um, so there are other, there's lots of little things in there that we can tinker with. I mean, it's a campground. That's why we liked it. Cause we could add almost anybody. Right. And so it'll work. Um, I think some of the other things we're looking at though, is handling some of the, the case theories we've been seeing or hearing about that were definitely not what we had intended. And so I think, that's some of the things we'll address. 
you know, along those lines, and, and this isn't necessarily a question in, that I had planned to ask, but I imagine, and I've never been on a, on a case committee, especially not a criminal case committee where you have an unrestrained defendant, but I imagine it has to be hard, you know, with, with, with the unrestrained defendant in theory, they can say anything. Now, of course you have to, you know, keep it within the boundaries of the rules and somehow in theory, make your other two witnesses work for that theory. But how hard is it to plan for and anticipate theories like that in a case where the defendant is unrestrained by the affidavit? It's really hard. I mean, we, we gave the criminal (laughs) histories of certain witnesses for a reason, right? To try to constrain some things and try to stop people from going maybe too far into certain areas. Um, And so it's hard, but you know, we're giving them a lot of freedom. I mean, that's sort of the one realistic thing, right? That I always hated when I was competing is like, we've got this defendant who in a criminal case is signing an affidavit that doesn't happen. Right. And so as mock trials become a little bit more realistic, we like to afford that realism. But, um, you know, much like if you give too much freedom, sometimes, you know, it becomes a problem. And so it's that balance that we're trying to strike as a committee, I think, as an organization. So, you know, what is okay? What is not okay? What is going too far? Um, And and I don't mean that in like a, you think Kelly Dews did it. I mean, fine, great. You know, I mean, but that's, that's novel. I think it's when you're, you're going into some very touchy personal things that sometimes teams will do. Um, they get a little frustrating. Well, the, the chair of the criminal case committee said Kelly Dews did it. So now I'm going to see that. That's the only defense I'm going to see for the rest of the fall. Only soundbite that matters. <laughs> exactly. Um, so one last process related question, and this was just an interesting exchange that I saw. So there's this AMTA coaches Facebook group, which is occasionally useful and uh it uh there was someone asked a question uh recently about teams pursuing manslaughter but not arguing abandonment and there was a coach who posted uh, i guess i talked to you and posted a reply basically saying that your interpretation was that be the way the indictment was written uh that like that is essentially a violation of the rules because uh the indictment is written a specific way now i'm not trying to get I'm not trying to like pin you in a corner on any rules things or anything like that, but I'm just curious, like, can you explain real quick, just your thought process behind that on like the, a manslaughter case theory, not arguing that and like why that probably isn't really within what you guys are trying to do with the case. Yeah, sure. So we've had a, I'd say five or six questions like that to the committee. So that's not a problem. Um, but when we wrote the, the bill of particulars, right at the end of the indictment, it definitely says abandon on the loop. And so, and I've seen teams do this as well, um, you know, where they say, well, as long as they abandoned them at some point. And so when I responded to the particular question that I had, they had said, well, what if we let them come back and then they just go wandering out, you know, Parker goes wandering out in the middle of the night. I'm like, well, that's not really what they were indicted for, right? They were indicted for abandoning Parker on the loop. And then special instruction eight says you can't change the indictment. So that was the reasoning behind that. Gotcha. Well, I think, you know, I, I've been to a couple of tournaments. So as Drew, we were just together at Drew's tournament and, and I got to judge a couple of rounds. And I think so far it's been a really fun and interesting case. And we're looking forward to seeing how it plays out for the rest of the fall. And, you know, again, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and chatting a little bit about it. And, and, you know, just generally we appreciate everything that, that you did and making it happen. Obviously that I think the community has been enjoying it so far. So, Thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Neil. Yeah, my pleasure.